we were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Good day, everybody. This is Cleet Johnson. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the Strategic Technologies Program. I have the, the great honor this summer to be working with Jim Lewis, who's the head of the Strategic Technologies Program. And we have a paper series and, and a couple of public events that are focused on the importance of commercial 5G as a national security imperative, and therefore as the importance of commercial radio frequency spectrum as crucial to that national security imperative. So I'm thrilled to be working on this paper series. Jim placed the first paper out that describes the link between national security and commercial spectrum earlier in June. This week, we will publish the second paper that is going out under my name, focused on reallocation and the national security benefits of reallocating federal spectrum for licensed commercial 5G use. We're going to unpack some of that and then we will finish the paper series hopefully later this month with a, a set of concrete recommendations about how to achieve that goal of more commercial spectrum. So we're going to talk through all of these issues today with a star-studded cast of former leaders in government on these issues, and also former colleagues of mine out in government and also in the in the private sector world that I operate in now. First is my longtime colleague at the Commerce Department and present colleague at Wilkinson Barker Nower, where we're both we're both partners working on these issues on the legal side, Evelyn Romali. Evelyn has a long career in government and on, on internet and telecom issues including working with DOD and the Department of Homeland Security, and then one more recent years as a leader at NTIA, ultimately serving as acting administrator for the first year or so of the Biden administration. Second, we have Diane Ronaldo, who preceded Evelyn as the acting administrator of NTIA in the last year or so of the Trump administration. Also had a chance to work with Diane when she was on the House Intelligence Committee and we work with her on a variety of 5G issues these days. And finally, Robin Colwell, who was the lead on spectrum issues and 5G issues in the Trump administration's National Economic Council, and was widely seen, whether you call her the 5G czar or 5G guru, she, she worked on all, all aspects of 5G and spectrum issues from the White House. And before that, had a wide variety of experiences in the telecom world, including on the Hill as well. And so this collection of, of former government leaders and longtime friends and colleagues have a lot to add here because I think they, they have all have a unique perspective, having worked at the intersection of traditional telecom issues, traditional spectrum issues, and national security, and have a particular perspective, especially on how the threat of China's dominance in the technology sector in the coming years is directly relevant to what previously were traditional 
spectrum availability issues and traditional telecom issues. They are they're now a matter of core U.S. national security interests. And so we want to try to unpack that today. Before we go into the deep dive discussion, I just want to give my fellow colleagues a chance to say hello. And if, if there's anything you want to kick off with about how do you see the relationship between U.S. commercial strength and and U.S. spectrum of commercial spectrum availability and kind of the grand strategy national security issues of, of the 21st century. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Maybe I'll start with Diane. Sure. Hi, Cleet. Thanks so much for having me today. I, I will say that I think that the concept started percolating, and correct me if I'm wrong, I would say maybe in the mid-teens, the 2014-15 timeframe where economic security is good national security. As we sit here today and talk about 5G and connectivity, it, it underpins everything else. I mean, as, as I often say, it's we're the digital of everything. We talk about IT, we talk about connected vehicles, and every aspect of what we do pretty much is done via phone, computer, something that has a, a connection to it. And that does require spectrum. So it's important that when we look at these issues, we really look at them holistically. And I think that sometimes that gets lost in this debate where people are a little bit more myopic and think of kind of one specific issue. So I think podcasts and events like this that kind of bring light to the overarching concerns, issues, good points, bad points, and what helped drive the conversation because we, we do need to continue to go forward. These conversations, they're not going to dissipate. They're only going to get harder. So uh, it's important to keep the lines of communications going. Great. Thanks, Diane. Robin, Evelyn, anything you want to weigh in with up front? Yeah. Hi, Cleed. It's Robin. Happy to be here today. It's a really important conversation that I'm really happy to be a part of. In the Trump White House, in dealing with these issues, it was definitely viewed very much so as both an economic security and a national security issue. And you can tell that by kind of the way we handled all of our interagency and our operations with 5G. You know, as a co-lead of that interagency process, along with my colleague at the NSC, Josh Steinman, and I think we were able to accomplish a lot on this front. So hopefully it's still viewed that way in the current administration. I think it very much is. This is an issue, 5G, kind of as both an economic and a national security priority that's had a ton of bipartisan support on the Hill. And, you know, unfortunately, right now we find ourselves at kind of an impasse looking ahead for the future of the Spectrum pipeline. And that's something of just great concern and just looking forward to kind of diving in and talking about the different facets of that today. That's great. Evelyn, how about you want to say hello? Yeah. Hi, Cleet. Hi, Robin. Hi, Diana. It's just so great to be here with all three of you, three of my favorite colleagues and people. And we've certainly all been in the trenches together on these issues. So looking forward to unpacking some of that today. You know, I just agree with everything uh, that has been said so far in terms of how important this issue is for our country right now, for our economy, for national security. As we all know, 
uh, really our national security is so dependent on our ability uh, to be leading on the technology front, on the innovation there, and Spectrum is such a key component of that. And after having spent so much time in both the private sector and uh, working with the Departments of Defense and the White House and with the economic agencies as well on these issues, I just think it's so important at this moment that we really increase our collaboration around these issues. But we are at an important time where the Spectrum Auction Authority has been suspended, but we're moving into international discussions at the World Radio Conference. It's just a really critical time for us to be thinking strategically and smartly about these issues. So looking forward to this discussion today as we unpack all of this. Well, thank you. And Evelyn, I think what you, you noted the moment that we're in, and I'll just take a, a step back and just to look at this moment slightly more broadly, but still very recently in the post-COVID world, where I think we we learned quite a bit about the, the danger of supply chain shortages and choke points, particularly supply chain choke points that have a, a China nexus. We also, I think, learned a little bit about China as a, as a responsible, or I'll just come out and say an irresponsible global citizen it, it, through the through the pandemic, uh, the origins of, of the pandemic. And also with we're approaching with the NATO summit coming up tomorrow, July 11th, we're in this new era that is still brand new of the, 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 the post-Cold War peace being shattered by an aggressive land war with Russia invading Ukraine and, and China tacitly backing up Russia in, in my view, kind of taking taking Russia's side. So this is the, the moment that we're in as we as we approach the World Radio Conference and with Spectrum Authority lapsed, is that in my view, we have we're in we're in a, a, a very dangerous world historical moment where China, probably the most powerful authoritarian state in, in history, is seeking to use technology and and 5G ubiquitous connectivity in particular as a strategic security lever. So let me just, I'll start with a pretty stark question and just see what y'all think about it. I really think, I'm not a spectrum expert like you like you all are, but I, I, I do have a good sense of what China is trying to do with the 21st century in, in dominating key technologies. And, and in particular using connectivity and the ubiquitous connectivity that will come from 5G that's not just cell phones but it's sensors and devices that where everything is connected as Diane mentioned and the data that comes from this ubiquitous connectivity as a as a source of social control and information control which is in some ways the diametric opposite of the freedom of expression and innovation and the political self-determination that that underlies the United States and its allies. So do you think it is too, am I being alarmist or being too stark when I hypothesize that if the United States faces a spectrum shortage vis-a-vis -vis China, that China will lead the 5G economy in the coming decades, 
and that China will therefore dominate 21st century technology and that China will therefore dominate the 21st century. So it, it, we're really at this moment that Evelyn mentioned before is kind of a fork in the road between US and market democratic leadership and China sponsored authoritarian kind of dominate in the 21st century. Am I going too far on that? Um, no, not at all. I would say you're not being an alarmist, but you're ringing the alarm. And we're seeing it happen now. So it's not a prediction. We are seeing it trickle. 5G in connections underpin everything else. It's us giving the creators and the innovators a canvas to work off. And if we are unable to provide that canvas, which is what we're seeing right now, they have nothing to work with. And it's going to give our adversaries a lead and a head start. And if we lose that edge, it's very hard to come back from. I'm not sure any of any of you on this this podcast would be shocked, <laughs> but I've heard many a policymakers say maybe we should scrap 5G and go to 6G. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so again, right? It's it's communicating and educating people on what connectivity ultimately means, and in, in the building blocks that that we create from one generation of networks to the other, and it is a step up, right? Every time, so it's not like we could just bypass and, and go to something else. And if I could just mention one more thing, Cleet, that, that came up um, early last week, and, and I'm not making a comment on the, the policy decision, but just kind of where China's mindset is compared to where we are right now, is they just announced that they are allocating six gigahertz per spectrum, right? They're, they're going ahead and announcing major swaths of spectrum for 5G and beyond, and, and we still have no ability to authorize spectrum sales right now because Congress hasn't extended that. So uh, again, right, I, I'm not sure where the break is in, in how we get members of Congress to, to see how important it is and that we get this spectrum authority, uh, again, extended and passed into law, but you know, it's, it's imperative. Absolutely. And I think the numbers of, of spectrum allocation that China has allocated or is, is allocating to commercial 5G is up to, is over a thousand megahertz. And and as they go to the radio, World Radio Conference, they are supporting the harmonization of almost 1500 megahertz of spectrum for new potential 5G use. And the United States right now is supporting nearly 80% less as we go to, to Dubai. So to Evelyn and Robin, is that, just back to my original question, am I alarmist in seeing that spectrum gap as a national security gap? Not at all, Cleet. There's just been so much focus on this in the last several years, kind of the, the ramifications of leadership in 5G and potential ramifications of Chinese leadership in 5G. The reason there's been so much focus on this, not to be too dramatic, but it really is an existential fight at this point in the development. You need spectrum to be able to have the carriers start to build out. And in order for them to start to build out, that's what they need to be able to do to start buying the equipment. And so that's kind of what's at stake here. Due to kind of the prevailing wireless network architecture that locks customers into these proprietary systems with a really big capital investment. And so kind of Huawei versus some Western providers, this just prevents a classic economies of scale scenario. So with even a slight imbalance in demand that we're already seeing, right, with, with China being able to allocate all this spectrum and so their carriers to be able to 
kind of take off and drive that demand for, for things within the Huawei ecosystem with even that slight imbalance of demand, which I would argue is, is quickly tipping over to, to kind of a medium-sized to large imbalance in demand, you're quickly in this scenario where China has all the economies of scale on their side. Um, so they're able to kind of be producing all of this equipment. It impacts the prices. It eventually makes the demand imbalance even worse. So open RAN in this scenario is a great alternative to just break out of that proprietary framework and disrupt the Chinese advantage. That's why you see so much US government policy since 2020 directed at encouraging open RAN. But as you said, Cleed, it all just starts with the spectrum. So, so before you have the spectrum allocated for the carriers to be able to build out on, there's just no demand really for the equipment. And so what you're seeing here is an imbalance with the Chinese having that demand and being able to kind of build these things and build them a lot more cheaply. You made a nod to some other policy initiatives that are that are aimed at at the same problem. And I'll throw the semiconductors and chips act into that as well. And but Evelyn, you spent a good bit of your of your time as the head of NTIA focused on those issues. How do you how do you see you have the Robin mentioned open RAND, you have the component side of the supply chain, you have the semiconductor side of the supply chain which I think many in on the Hill and in the administration see as a, as a national security issue that includes economic and technological security, but, but it is largely a national security issue. Where does Spectrum fit into that? Can we achieve those broader goals without being competitive in Spectrum availability? So uh, the quick answer is no. I mean, I think, you know, we haven't been thinking as strategically about spectrum availability and how we're approaching the bands and preparing for the future as we have on the equipment side. But just as Robin and both Diane were pointing out, we need both to be successful. We, we really do need to be thinking uh, strategically about what bands we're opening up for 5G and technical innovation, where we want to be going uh, with the technology. You pointed out how, you know, as we move into this 5G environment of everything connected, there's so much control possible over the society from this technology. The ability to track location and to just have an unfathomable um, amount of personal data about individuals, uh, so much that they're walking around with on one device in terms of health and finance and bio information on that person. If you put that type of uh, technology uh, in the hands of authorities that don't have the same respect for human rights, for civil liberties and the values uh, that we in the U.S. hold dear, you're really setting up a situation uh, that can cause a, an extreme uh, security threat for individuals. And we really need to be thinking more clearly with our international partners about how we're equipping these bands, who's actually operating in the bands so that we know that that infrastructure 
and the technology being used in those bands is secure and can protect our citizens uh, and that it won't be exploited or used against those individuals at a time of conflict. You can see the supply chain issues actually playing out right now in the Russia and Ukraine situation where, you know, one of the first triggers that happens, right, is that you hold back certain control to assets that that your competitor needs. So what do you do? You hold back oil or you hold back gas or you hold back. It's the same thing uh, in terms of communication. So if we do not have control over our communications infrastructure, the same risk is there. And the U.S. has every dependence on our information and communications technology infrastructure. So we need to make sure that we can trust that infrastructure where the supply is coming from and also the technology itself. And we need to make sure that just as Robin was saying that our companies uh, that we do trust are able to compete globally in these markets. And unless they have the ability to compete and design for multiple bands across the world that they that they understand and can design to and operate in, then they're left out on an island. They need to design for every different country, every different market. And we're already struggling against the Chinese because they're able to provide below market financing and pricing on their equipment. So without our being strategic, uh, without being able to give uh, our trusted providers the ability to compete, we're just making the situation even worse in terms of the security that we need to ensure those airwaves are trusted for our citizens. And there's no, I mean, in my view, there's there's no way that the United States can be uh, a secure island, albeit a very big island and has been a, a big island for a, a long time. But the, if the United States is not leading the global economy and in, in the global technology development along with our market dem- democratic allies, as you said, Evelyn, then I, I, I think it's, I mean, this is something that will come out in this paper that we're publishing this week that it it risks having a, a Chinese-based, nat, quote, national champion like Huawei or ZTE or TikTok be the dominant player in every sector. So there would be a national champion in transportation, a national champ- champion in biotech, and go down the list of all the sectors. If you have a Huawei or TikTok equivalent in each of those sectors, I don't think there are any weapons or technology bans or mitigation possibilities that that can actually secure our interests. And I say this as a, a very proud Army veteran. So is that is that what you think the world could look like in, let's fast forward to 2040, 2050, if China does lead the 5G economy? Are we looking at that type of kind of authoritarian takeover of, of technology in every sector? Well, we do know that they have the intent to want to dominate all of the strategic technology areas. So they have plans to dominate in artificial intelligence and in quantum and nano and biotechnology. So we af- absolutely 
need to be uh, smart and strategic ourselves to ensure that that is the future that we're not driving towards. And again, the risk is not an economic risk. It is not just an economic risk. This relates to the national security of our country because it's about our citizens' national sensitive data. It's about how that data can be used. It's what that means in terms of holding our country and our infrastructure at risk because uh, we've fallen behind and are reliant on a strategic competitor for our key resources. So that's why we need to be uh, thinking much more strategically and with our partners on this issue too, because as we all know, the US market is not, um, although at one point uh, we were probably the big behemoth in terms of market for information and communications technology, but we need partners on this today to have an impact. And so that's why we need to be, again, working with our other uh, like-minded partners to make sure that we're thinking collectively about how we keep, again, our information technology uh, secure together. Thanks, Evelyn. This is sort of a chorus of agreement, maybe because we've all worked together on these same issues and including in government where it's not always it's not always 100% clear how the commercial interests underlie national security interests. But I, I feel like we're at a, maybe possibly at a turning point where we have policymakers who know just in their gut, even if they in many cases can articulate why, but it, in their gut, they know that TikTok is a <laughs> constitutes a, a a security threat for a wide variety of reasons, and so I'm, I'm kind of thinking that if you're concerned about Huawei, if you're concerned about TikTok, you should also be concerned about the the spectrum gap in the United States. And so I kind of want to move to how you all think. What do we do about this? We're we're way behind China in in spectrum allocation for particularly for mid-band 5G, particularly licensed 5G. And we don't we don't want to get into the various debates about what the right balance of licensed versus unlicensed are. But I think we can say that licensed spectrum is might be seen as kind of the the primary artery that arteries plural that that nourish the 5G economy. And those are kind of the the sort of the big pipes. And so how do we get more of, of, of that, recognizing that there's a lot of federal incumbents in the bands that are so-called beachfront property for uh, mid-band spectrum? Do we try to maximize spectral efficiency? Can we repack some bands? Can we reallocate some bands? And I would love, I know I've talked with all three of you about some of your experiences in government on those issues. How does it work? So just two open-ended questions. What, what should we be looking to do as a practical matter, the national spectrum strategy in mind, for instance, and then number two, how does it work in practicality? Well, if I can add real quick, there's only one of us on this call that has a band unofficially named for her. So this is probably best for Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it, Robin. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed, agreed. So, Cleet, so I would say, how do we get more spectrum? The biggest thing we have to figure out how to do is to rationalize the process. I feel like there's a lot of kind of irrationality 
And that's, you know, just based on people kind of protecting their interests. Incumbents have a, have a huge tendency to hang on to any spectrum they have for dear life. And that's regardless of how inefficient the current use of it may be. So the real key here um, and how we were able to make a breakthrough back in 2020 is to be able to do a real analysis of what kind of the current use is that the incumbent is using the spectrum for. The process of how you do that, it kind of depends on whether the spectrum that you're looking at is controlled by the private sector or the government. In the private sector, you know, I would use as a big example, most recent example is C-band. So, you know, that's just an example of how market forces are naturally going to cause the private sector to be looking for efficiencies. So in the case of C-band, the satellite companies held the licenses, but they recognized they could take advantage. There were developments in technology. So kind of going back to what you were talking about, Cleet, and the spectral efficiency or kind of developments in technology, things like better video compression or simply kind of a, a migration in terms of wired broadband and who's able to have it. But there was a huge opportunity there for those companies to essentially kind of repack and sell off some of the spectrum. And what I would say is the key for that, we just have to make sure the incentives stay in place to incentivize private sector licensees to, to, to do this behavior, which is just to be constantly looking for ways that they can maximize the efficiency of how they're using the spectrum. I think in CBN, we were got a little bit close to messing that up. I had some concerns about it kind of during the process. Um, you just needed to keep the appropriate incentives in place for those companies that had the licenses to be able to be paid for going through that process and, and, and maximizing the, the efficiency of the spectrum for everyone. And by doing that, they were able to open up a huge chunk of midband, which everybody's putting to great use now. On the government side, the example is 3.45 and the AMBIT process that we were able to complete during that administration. AMBIT was a process through which we had experts kind of specifically analyze each system that was operating in that band, the 3.45 band, and figure out for each of those systems, what were the alternatives for those systems to be able to continue operating, where we could potentially be able to move some of them and have them operating on a different spectrum that wasn't in that kind of specific band, and, and identify what we could potentially free up. So that's kind of a rationalized process. Yeah. And I'll just uh, I'll unpack that that acronym for those who don't know the AMBIT acronym. It, I love this. I love the this uh, this term. It's America's Midband Initiative Team. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I mean, it's like that's, go red, all red, white, and blue. I love it. Yeah. But how did we get there? And kind of the the second question you had, Cleet, is is what people need to know about mm -hmm. how this whole process works. There's two things I would say. One is just this deadlock dynamic and kind of the government mechanisms that, that people think should otherwise be able to solve these problems. And number two is the information asymmetry in like the information that's actually available about who is actually doing what in mm -hmm. what, which is really critical kind of basic information that you need to know to be able to think kind of in the big picture about what would be the most efficient overall use to take care of all the different priorities that the government has. That's the deadlock dynamic is something I think in this situation of spectrum allocation um, really cannot be underestimated. The difficulty of kind of breaking through or working through any of these things. The committees of jurisdiction on the Hill, which I've had the pleasure of being able to work within, 
Commerce, ENC, Hask, Sask, they all kind of play to a draw on the Hill, right? Because mm-hmm. they're kind of advocating for very different interests. And so it's really difficult kind of in a consensus driven environment and needing 60 votes in the Senate to kind of break through and um, be able to rationalize that process. And the same thing kind of happens in the interagency side within the administration. The agencies are all in the, this interagency process. It's consensus driven, right? You can't get out of it without everybody agreeing. And so if there's one kind of party that doesn't agree, you kind of get nowhere. And so that's what leads to kind of the current impasse we have with respect to the expired auction authority and kind of no real plan for a spectrum pipeline. And then you get the information asymmetry, right? We've been trying yeah. for a long time to, to potentially a good public policy would maybe just to do an overall basic spectrum inventory and understand kind of who is operating where. But even that kind of level of information has been really difficult to get. A lot of those government uses are classified, which mm-hmm. they should be, but there's real, no real mechanism to force that information to be shared and analyzed like we did with AMPIT, even within a classified setting. Right. So those are the challenges of the process. Would you say, and this is a question for all of you, do, do you think having, uh, I think all of us have spent time in SCIFs and the NSC interagency processes where you you have the commercial interests greatly outnumbered by the government agencies that, that whose the underpaid, overworked public servants who work for those agencies wake up every day and are worried or are go to work focused on terrorist threats or China threats or Russia's threats, and and they have a very important job to do that in many cases is you know in some cases an acute life or death you know operational job. In that setting, the I've I've I often found that the the commercial interests kind of feel, you know, secondary to the the security interests. Is that the way you see this playing out in in spectrum discussions, where the government incumbents in a band, particularly if they are security related agencies, their their interests trump the commercial interests. So I will say that I think one of the biggest issues when discussing spectrum is the lack of knowledge. I would say that the security agencies typically have more engineers that are more knowledgeable. Their leadership is more engaged, maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have an understanding of the issue at stake in some of the civilian agencies. Leadership probably never heard of spectrum before taking this job. And so when they see articles in the paper saying planes are going to fall out of the sky, like, oh, my God, I, this can't happen on my watch. Mm-hmm. And everyone comes to a hell no scenario. Right. And then everything stops. IEC band. So I, in, in my tenure, I've seen that probably as the biggest issue, you know, and, and as as we were talking about earlier, Cleet, like politics has nothing on turf battles in Washington, D.C. Right. So everyone just kind of wants to protect what's theirs, not give it away. That scene, that scene is a loss. So how can we get agencies, even commercial uh, players that are, that are not, you know, using spectrum, how do we get them to a place where they see it as a benefit to relinquish what's not being used? I I think that turf, and it's, it's hard to conceptualize this in the spectrum world because radio frequency spectrum is literally invisible radio waves (laughs) going through the air so it's hard to conceptualize it as turf, but if a federal agency has a spectrum band, it, that is in many ways 
that is turf and they don't want to rightly for reasons that are understandable don't want to don't want to give it up so i guess my question for the for the group is does it need to be that zero sum is it, is it necessarily a zero sum game in spectrum availability where if somebody gains more spectrum than somebody necessarily loses the exact same amount or are there are there developments that allow to make that allow us to make the the spectrum bigger so to speak even if it's not uh, we're not obviously can't create new radio waves but is it possible through spectral efficiency to make gains su such that every spectrum user effectively has more because they have more efficient use of what they've got do you see that as a possibility you should just never kind of discount the ability of technology to kind of work out some of these problems going ahead we you don't see a lot of that right now just in the same way that you kind of have opened up a whole lot of new bands kind of way up in the spectrum mm -hmm. things that would not have been useful at all a few years ago and suddenly are, are becoming useful the technology is being developed to share a lot more efficiently and kind of network slicing that's available through 5G. So kind of never discount the ability of technology breakthroughs to kind of make things possible that were not possible. That all being said, we're kind of looking at a finite universe of options in the present. And in the dynamics of the current competition with China, time is of the essence. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I, I agree with that. There are some exciting things happening on the innovation side, but but just as Robin's saying, I mean, it's, you know, there's a timeliness issue here as well. I, I think there are a few other things, you know, that, that would help the situation as well. I mean, you know, Diane talked about expertise, that that is a big issue. Leadership's important. Like when when Robin uh, was at the White House, I mean, talk, you know, we've talked about what a difference that made um, having her there with her deep knowledge and being able to see across the agencies and help to bring consensus together. That, that, that alone is such a huge contributor to the process. You know, we really need to bolster NTIA and, and Diane and I both know this uh, firsthand that, you know, that agency has an outsized mission and, you know, yet hasn't been reauthorized, I think, since the 90s. It really should likely have an undersecretary leading the agency. It needs to have additional resources for its lab out in Boulder to be able to contribute uh, to the field here to do more authoritative studies that the interagency uh, relies on and trusts. So the role of NTIA and bolstering that is, is, is really important here. In addition, we just really need to put some, the, the incentives as, as we've talked about aren't quite aligned. One of the challenges uh, for the agencies holding the spectrum is that sometimes, you know, and now of course we're working without auction authority, but the way it works, and I'm sure Robin and Diane have thoughts on this as well, but you know, the dollars don't come 
until after the auction. And so there's a lot of reticence um, to try to solve a problem when it's only speculative that they might get the money they need to actually make changes. So one thing that could be looked at as well is how do we ensure that uh, we can provide resources and investment earlier in the pipeline planning process so that these agencies that do, you know, are on those bands have the opportunity to feel more confident that if they're able to make efficiency changes that they're actually going to see the right amount of reimbursement to implement that. So that that's one thing that can happen too. You know, we're just still struggling. The current process we know is not working and is not sufficient. And so we really need to analyze, again, how we can shift the incentives to make sure that the thinking is not about protection and sitting on and protecting that turf, but you actually are rewarded for thinking more strategically and thinking more innovatively, holistically about how we can be leaner, more efficient, and more technologically savvy to compete globally. Again, not just thinking myopically about like one specific mission and one specific office for some of these agencies. Yeah, I think some of the past, this is in the in the paper that will be published this week, there are a lot of examples of reallocation that and and kind of engineers getting in the room to make things work that are are real success stories AWS 1 AWS 3 in the past couple decades and it, you know kind of show how it can be done and to great success and even to Evelyn's point about the funding availability i think in most of these most of these auctions the the bounty of of revenue that goes to the government from these auctions is enormous and and in many cases dwarfs the expected cost uh, of the transition. So we're hoping in in this in the third paper, you you all have put forth some good ideas to pursue in the in the third paper, is that we can lay out some concrete processes and ideas to to really maximize that. In most cases, there's more money available than was expected. Or and and also more money available than is was originally estimated. Yes, and, and much of that is not being channeled back into the process. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and what just so this is a, one final kind of observation, and this gets to the technological breakthroughs that that could basically create more spectrum out of the same spectrum. I saw there's one stat that over the course of the past decade or so, the commercial 4G and 5G have enabled 42 times greater spectral efficiency in terms of the amount of data that can be transmitted through one band. Is that, first of all, 42 times greater efficiency gives you a lot more spectrum? Just two questions. Do you think that type of, of efficiency exists now in a number of, in most federal programs, is that that rate of improvement of spectral efficiency happening, number one? And number two, do you think these advances in commercial spectral efficiency can create a positive feedback loop into federal use of spectrum that, that could have the effect of, of essentially creating more spectrum out of 
out of the finite resource we have? I would say absolutely. I mean, we need an all of the above strategy. Sometimes I feel like there are buzzwords in, in Washington and the current one is AI, but with AI brings censoring technology, brings greater efficiencies. You know, I, I think that we need to look at every avenue possible in, in order to do more with less. And we're only have more connections as time goes on. So we need to be judicious with what we have. Network slicing is also, I think, important topic to this conversation. You know, agencies that might not need, I'm not, I'm not talking about like the big ones, but some of the smaller ones that might not need dedicated spectrum, could we do network slicing to give them private networks? So I think technology has definitely, and it already has definitely changed the conversation. Evelyn or Robin, anything to, to close with on that on that point? And I, no, I would just say that I, I think what Diane is saying is, is absolutely true. I think that we will continue to face the problem and, and, you know, just again, working so many years within the defense environment and knowing how, when lives are on the line and you know, we have these legacy programs that have been in place for a long time. It is, it is really difficult to shift the thinking there when we've been doing things one way and there's been quite a bit of public investment already embedded there. And so I think it is really, really critical though that we keep pushing on this to bring those issues to the forefront, that we need to find ways to innovate, we need to find ways to get the dollars to the right place so that we can advance more quickly, have, you know, use technology to solve the problems that we're saying right now are prohibiting us from being able to move forward. So we have to have a commitment to do that. And again, that takes leadership. Yeah, I would you know, agree with Evelyn, just as she was just saying, you know, there's just a lot of kind of sunk cost and investment into a lot of these systems, incumbent systems that are currently using Spectrum. So the, the spectral efficiency type of stats, Cleed, that we're talking about that's just so admirable on the private industry side is really difficult for the government incumbents to be able to match. They're kind of invested into systems and the systems are where they are and they kind of do what they do. That being said, I think all of the innovation over on the private sector side does have the potential to kind of cross over and to, you know, kind of make the government systems be able to be a lot more efficient. But you have to have the incentive structure in place for the government incumbents to be able to adopt that new technology. It isn't something that can just happen automatically. Right. Well, and this, I think this gets back to to the points I think Robin raised at first, but we need to have technical deep dives with engineers in the rooms doing deep analysis of what the possibilities are and also sharing in a way that that can be remunerated <laughs> with funding and resources, sharing new possibilities for efficiency and other potential breakthroughs for, uh, for making more, as Diane put it, making more with less. Um, and essentially creating new spectrum by 
more efficient uses and more collaborative uses. So we're going to put all this together into the third paper, and we're going to offer some concrete suggestions about how industry and government together can move ahead and essentially create more spectrum for all to kind of coin a, a pithy phrase, but with the idea being that government network operations, DOD weapons and, and defense operations, and, and U.S. and allied commercial innovation is are all indispensable to our security interests. And so with that, I want to thank Evelyn, Diane, and Robin for your expertise, for your government service, and for sharing some of your insights today. I really appreciate it and look forward to, to the next steps in this paper series. And also we'll be having a, a public event laying out some of these findings and perspectives in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for that announcement. And with that, I'll close out and just thank you very much. Thanks, Cleet. Thanks. So good talking with everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode. Thank you.